You're listening to a 1911 podcast. This is Celebs and the Average Joe. Well, I'm in the company of absolute greatness in this episode. A lovely time was had by all. Rory Best is arguably one of the best players and greatest ever captains to grace a rugby pitch in an Irish jersey. Between representing Ireland 124 times, which we're still trying to confirm if that's an accurate amount or not. You'll learn more in the episode about that. And also being ambushed by James Haskell and pushed down the street in a hospital bed in Auckland, New Zealand. That's something I never, ever thought I'd be talking to Rory Best about or describing him and Haskell as Shrek and Donkey. But here we are. He's now swapped being a full-time legend to become a full-time farmer. Pele good, Maradona better, Rory Best. We'll also talk about that in the episode. There we go. Well, well, how are you getting on? Getting on good. How are you, Rory? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. So I'm in the presence of Irish rugby royalty, something that I have rehearsed three or four times this morning, trying to make sure that I get it right. And you've got such a beaming smile, Rory Best, that <laughs> I, I just want to be sure that I've got this accurate. So in your career, which you're probably the, the, the best thing to come from Ireland since Guinness or soda bread or potato bread. You're up there with those things that we hold very dear in our hearts. 124 times playing for Ireland and 38 times captaining Ireland. That is unbelievable. And then we have Ulster. Is it 218? Because I will be honest to hold my hands up. A couple of very reliable sources <laughs> said... 218 and another website said 219 can you either confirm or deny it's funny um and i thought it was 217 um it's somewhere in that number uh and i'd have to go and check whenever i retired um ulster the players sort of funded ulster they present you with a gift or they they sort of put a certain amount per year towards a gift and I topped up the rest and I got engraved in it, my number of caps for Ulster. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to get that re-engraved. So that is the number. And I, and I would need to go and look at the, the clasp of the watch, but it's either 217 or 219. Something tells me it's an odd number. <laughs> um, and that is it. That's it. Well, I'm going to say set in stone. That's it engraved in some sort of metal. <laughs> uh, well, if it comes from Ulster, I would have, I would imagine in, in the Ravenhill hierarchy, it's probably very expensive. So <laughs> we'll go with that. You are enjoying this side of lockdown, lockdown five thousand or whatever lockdown we're in. You're on the farm. Yeah, uh, I was been very lucky all my life to have been born on a farm and I grew up, and it's a side of that I love just being in the countryside farming. When I was a bit younger, my early days as a professional, I used to, we nearly always had a Wednesday off and I would have been down on the farm every Wednesday. I moved closer to home when I was sort of early twenties. Um, and that was part of the reason is my wife's a teacher. So she was teaching and I was, um, I was on the farm sort of that late twenties, early thirties, the latter part of my career, I didn't get on as much. Just I just didn't have the energy. I didn't have the time, the kids. Um, my wife was working a bit less because of the kids. 
and now that I'm retired, I am really enjoying that that bit of the farm. And you, know, you can sort of touch on the the mental health benefits that it has just to get outside and feel like something's um feel a part of something and and it's really rewarding. The last few days have been pretty tough. We're calving cows at the minute. Aberdeen Angus we have and we've had a couple of of dead calves the last few days. So that's the other side of it. That's just a bit uh, it's sort of like a year's work gone in an instant and and that's the side of it that's that's sad and challenging. But the other side of it is we put some of the other cows and very young calves out and when the sun shines and they're out in grass it's it's just a lovely sight what's the feeling difference between walking out in the aviva to 50 odd thousand people and walking out to a farm and the peace and the quiet and the tranquility of of a few animals is that what you set life to be in your 30s retire as one of the most successful rugby players ever and just hang out with a few lambs well, I think the great thing is when you when you walk out to the cattle, it's exactly what you get. You get peace and quiet. Um, and I honestly think over my career, most of the cattle listened to me more than some of the players that I played with do, did. Um, so look, I, I like I said, I love it. And would I swap running out in front of fifty thousand to going out on the farm every morning? Absolutely not a chance. But it's lovely to be able to have both. How did you prepare yourself to run out the 50-odd thousand people? Was there any pre-match rituals that you did in the tunnel or in the dressing room that got you really, really hyped up? Um, I suppose I would have spent, I would have tried to sleep that sort of 24 hours before a game. I would have tried to sleep as much as I could. I was a bad sleeper the night before a game. I was just nervous and, and sleep. So I would finish the captain's run, which is normally the morning the day of the day before, try to get an hour or two in bed that afternoon. Uh, and then you just eat a lot and you really don't go very far because you're trying to res- sort of conserve some energy. The day of the game, depending on when the kickoff was, I would have slept quite a bit, you know, eat, sleep, eat, sleep, rest. I would have went through some of the the mental side of it, the preparation for the lineouts. Um, in terms of... Uh, I was sort of fairly meticulous about what I did. Um, it wasn't... It wasn't necessarily a set routine, but like socks wise, like especially came started picking my head later in my career because they started to give you socks that had an L and an R on them, and they obviously have to be on the left and right, you know. And I'd look across, and, and they'll be neat, very neatly put on, you know. The stitching at the end of your sock would sit perfectly across my toes, up all of that, and I'd look across, and boys like tag furlong, the sock would be twisted, the right to be in the left, left on the right. I was looking across, go, I can't, this, this blows my mind. I don't like this. Um, but those sort of those, like I would have with Ulster, it would have been my scrum cap I would have given to Dave or to um, Gareth Robinson. So he would have been the last sort of person just before I went onto the pitch. He would have handed me my scrum cap. Dave Evans, the Irish masseuse, he did the same. So all those little small things were all little triggers for me along the way to go, yeah, this feels comfortable. This feels normal. Okay, the nerves are good, but you've done this 100 times, 50 times, whatever it was. Just keep rehearsing that you've been through this and you can you can succeed here. Football is not, in my eyes, the hardest man's sport anymore. Rugby is a tough man's sport. It's a hard man's sport. But when you are about to go in for a scrum or you're going for a tackle or you're going on a run 
and you know that it's really, really dangerous. Did that ever cross your mind that this might go wrong? Or was it just the badge on your chest? That's all it meant. And the 50 odd thousand fans or the 20,000 fans at Ravenhill. Was that what, was that what and who it was for? I don't think it ever goes through your head that, that this can go wrong. This can be dangerous. I think it goes through your head that this can go wrong and that you can make a mistake. You know, you can cost a match, you can cost a penalty. Um, you've been there, you know, it could potentially hurt, I suppose, a little bit, but you don't think it's it's necessarily dangerous. And obviously, the longer you're about, the more experience tells you that the mistakes are easy to happen and can be very, very costly. And that somebody could sidestep you one way, the other way, go over the top of you, you could drop the ball, you could go into a scrum and get caught in a way where you lose the ball. So all of those things were, that was the fear that you had when you were playing. And um, like I say, experience is great in that it sort of teaches you how to overcome this fear, but that fear never goes away. And if anything, it probably gets worse as you go through your career. For me, the early part was just about going out and playing. You know, I didn't think much about it. I just went out and this is what I loved doing. And it was just getting ripped into everything that I could. As you got, you got a bit older and you got a little bit more au fait as to what can go wrong as well as what can go right. You need a bit more motivation. I was lucky that I got married sort of reasonably young. I, think I was 27, had my first kid when I was 28. So at that kind of 28, it was a real motivation for me to be representing my family. And it wasn't just my mum and dad and brothers and sisters anymore. It was my wife and my my kids. They came along at sort of whenever I was 28, then 30, then 32. So they're really good and, and probably really important stages in my career. And they were probably more than anything my motivation. I remember somebody telling me not to have kids when I got married. Someone said, oh, don't be having kids while you're still playing. You know, they ruin your rugby career. But when I look back now, I, I most definitely plot the best years of my rugby life were that sort of 28, 29 through to when I retired uh, in terms of performance uh, played and then to, to be, to have them involved in it. So I think there's no doubt that they were a huge motivation to me, not just on the pitch, but to work hard to make sure that I could be good on the pitch. Did you see your wife and, and your kids in the stand? Did you know where they were? Or were you just waving sort of they're around that area somewhere? I knew where they sat for Ireland at the Aviva Stadium because they're they're always, as you're facing the stand for the anthems, you've come out the tunnel, you've turned right, and they were always, as I turned around to face back the way I came out, they were always diagonally across to the right, sort of about two o'clock on a clock face, um, because that's the seats that they were given by the RFU um, for all, that was the players' allocation. So you knew roughly where they were. And I would generally spend my time during the anthems trying to find them because I usually find them quite quickly because sort of, Joe, there's only supposed to be two tickets in there. And to be fair to the IRFUs, as my sort of brood grew, they uh, they would give me a couple more tickets and they would spin them in. So with with Jody, with three kids hanging off, it wasn't that difficult to find no. in the middle of a committee box. No, some people would find that really tough when you're standing there. There's 50 odd thousand people. You're representing your country, your captain in your country, and you're so proud to be there. But in the blink of an eye, seeing your your little son or your wife waving at you, that could re- that could set any grown man off. Yeah, I suppose it's it was ultimately my motivation. So it wasn't 
I think if if you try to distance yourself from that to go, no, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm here. I'm focused on the game and only the game, and everything else is irrelevant. And you see something emotionally charges that. But for me, like that's why I did it. So you know, to see them was just you were kind of in the zone, and it was just a reminder to go. This is what this is what it's all about. This is why you do it. This is why you're now standing in the anthems, trembling absolutely nearly in panic stations this is why you do it and it's almost like a moment we go yeah right come on you need to give everything you've got here what's the feeling when you're standing and they're playing the national anthem and you've got the iron top on and the anthem stops and everyone cheers and you're getting the guys going seconds before kickoff what is the feeling like is it just complete euphoria um are we allowed to curse absolutely Absolutely. Absolutely shipping yourself is what you're doing. <laughs> and it's probably that moment. I think that's probably the moment where you switch from absolutely shitting yourself to, right, let's go. This is what it's about. Just that at the very end of the Irish anthem, when it hits that really high note and the whole place erupts, that's when you go, the, you've spent the whole day so nervous. And that's the moment when you go, yeah, this is exactly where I want to be right now. You bring everyone in and you say your last words. And usually when you're at home and it's a big game, it's just more about sort of telling everyone to take in what's going on and just make sure your first moments are the best that you can deliver and everyone else will follow you. And, and that is, there's no doubt that that's the moment when you go from, yeah, just that way. And you get, you just have feelings and you get to big games and you just go, and you look around that circle and you know that you're gonna, it's gonna be a good day. The flip side is you get days and you look, you kind of go, right, we need something to go right first in the first moments because we're not quite where we want to be. And that's a worrying stage. But that is the bit where you actually then you flip to become a rugby player who's doing his job and is solely focused on delivering. What would you say? And this might not be a fair question to ask you on the spot. So if you can't say one answer, Fair enough. If you give me 10 answers, no problem. What would be the pinnacle of your Irish career? Would it be the first time you got the captaincy? Or there's so I'm gonna I'm just gonna stop talking because there's so many different angles that it could be. It's really difficult. Um, it's a really difficult question because obviously you back to your first cap, and I probably wasn't in the physical condition I needed to be to take that. So I kind of look back and go, what a massive achievement. But I wish I'd have been in a better place to to given my all and I was very lucky that I got myself sorted and you know the later part of my career was a lot better than the early part um if you had to pick one like it's really between winning the Grand Slam on St Patrick's Day in Twickenham beating the All Blacks either for the first time or in Dublin or my 100th cap and I think the personal one was it would be 100 caps and to, to run out at the Aviva Stadium front of a packed Aviva Stadium to play Australia and to win that game and to, to be a centurion for my country. Um, it's enormous personal achievement. And that's the thing that, as an individual, I'm most proud of. Um, I think probably beating the All Blacks would be, as a team and as a captain, and I'd be a part of something special. The, the game in Chicago did it the first time, but I think when we beat them in Dublin, with the atmosphere and everything that went on that day, that's probably from a team point of view. The um, and with everything probably I went through personally that in seven days leading into that game, um, 
that was the biggest would be the biggest thing that I've been involved in. I think mainly because it, it's I don't like to say it, but Grand Slams have been done before, but the All Blacks have never lost in Dublin to an Irish senior men's team. So you know that was a, a one-off achievement. If you think about the three names that I was saying to my friends last night about that will go down in the history of, of the greatest players to ever play for Ireland, Rory Best, you, Brian O'Driscoll and Ronan O'Gara, the three players that have, that have played over 100 caps for Ireland. The two of them are the only ones that have played more games for Ireland than you. Do you think you just came from a really super generation because you were really a very tough team to beat? Yeah, I think it's incredibly lucky to come through um, and that kind of, whenever I was in my early career, that when O'Gara and O'Driscoll O'Connell, um, there was a few other key players in that, and this uh, Stringer O'Callaghan, you know, this was the so-called golden generation. And um, I think when I looked then, they said, oh, when they go, it'll never be matched. And actually when they went, and for us to be better again than, than we were when when they were playing, I think you take great pride in that because it sort of shows you that this is why sport is brilliant because actually the sum of your parts is so much more than than the individuals and we probably lost some world-class names in terms of their individual genius but what we did was we then had less reliance on one person and we knew we all had to carry the weight and uh, there was a bit more of a collective responsibility and probably in terms of consistency that is why those sort of from 2013, 14, 15 to 2018 were Ireland's, arguably Ireland's most successful years ever. I was thinking about renaming a really famous slogan in your honour. Instead of Maradona Good, Pele Better, George Best. You know where I'm going here, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to get that outside the Aviva. Talking about how big and successful your career was with Ireland and, and captain in your country... All good things have to come to an end. And I swear to God, I've watched the piece where you're interviewed after the, the last game against New Zealand and your three kids are on the side of the pitch. That would bring a tear to a glass eye. There's no doubt about that. But it then pans to you being interviewed. I think it was for BN Sports because I was like, please go back to it, please go back to it. And I couldn't for the life of me find the clip. But you're interviewed and you're asked the question, and you held it together so well, and the roar of the crowd started. I don't know how you didn't end up on your knees, because I was finding it tough, and I was just watching. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a really, really difficult one, because I sort of set from about 18 months before that, that was when I had decided to go on another contract cycle. It was about getting to World Cup, and it was about as a bare minimum, being the first Irish team to get to the last four to get to the semi-finals. So I was trying to weigh up the disappointment of not doing what we won. You know, I had visions of of going out knowing it was going to be my last game because it would either be a final or a third, fourth place playoff, you know, and, and all the hype around that. And then to not know, and then to be interviewed with the disappointment of another quarterfinal defeat and I think it was the third of my four World Cups and you know, then to try to also compute the fact that this was going to be my last ever game of rugby for Ireland. I played for the Barbarians a couple of times after that, but basically my last ever game of fully organised professional rugby. Um, 
with the kids there. And then to make matters worse, like you say, the crowd, like it was just could not hear a thing. And at that moment in time, I kind of all I wanted to do was get off the pitch. I was just like, oh, I'm so disappointed. Um, but when I look back at it now, and even at the time, to a certain extent, it was so important for, I felt that was such an important moment for my family because they're the ones that sacrificed the whole way. You know, all I did was, you know, I turned up and trained as hard as I could at Ulster. And then I was the one that went off for weeks on end with Ireland and focused everything on rugby. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, someone else picked up the pieces behind me because rugby is the most important thing. And, and the people picking up the pieces of my family, especially my wife, Jody, who, and like our life was basically dependent on the result of a weekend for 15 years, uh, Jody and I. And if Ulster won on a Friday night, you know, we'd be able to do stuff for the weekend and we'd be able to go out for a walk or dinner or if we're meeting friends for drinks. Um, and if Ulster lost, all cancelled. And you might as, she might as well have went and stayed with her mum and dad because I, was, like, I wasn't there. All I was doing was computing how we can be better. How can I go in on Monday? What do I need to say? Right, how did we lose that? And then you just keep going in like a circle over and over. So that reception at the end, I kind of felt that it was almost for them on a world stage to go, actually what he did and all the sacrifices meant so much to so many people. And I think as well to have the All Blacks, greatest team that I've ever played against over my entire career to, to get a guard of honour from them. Um, bar the result, you know, it really was a perfect kind of tribute to, for everyone that was involved in my career to be, to see the reception that I got. Would you say that you would be just mentally destroyed after a result? Like you couldn't, you couldn't even, you know, as, as high profile as you are, there's a, there'll be another game, but you would just be in the spare room or on the sofa for a couple of days after that? especially if it's an evening kickoff. Like, like I've seen me being lying awake in bed, sort of four or five, sometimes even up to six o'clock in the morning and kind of just going over and over in your head. And then you'll maybe doze for half an hour and come around again and you'll be going, if I hadn't done this or could I have done that or could I have prepared the team better or you know what could I have done differently? Um, and yeah, I, I found it really, really difficult to... If you could process a loss, I would take a day or two and then it would be the time I'd come back in on Monday morning, I would be very much, right, this is what we need to do. Let's just move on. I wouldn't dwell on it much past that, but in the immediate aftermath, it would be, it would consume me quite a lot. How would you try to fix that after that experience? If there's another defeat, do you learn from that? Or do you just have to accept that this is how I feel? I'm only human. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You just have to accept that. Yeah, and like you don't really accept you make mistakes, but as sort of time goes on, like you just allow yourself that 24 hours to, to get over it, 24, 48 hours, depending on how big the game was, to process it and then just try to start to find your way out of it and to go, right, okay, that wasn't good, but right, what can I do? And usually on a Sunday night, I would sit down and I would have my notebook and I'd go, right, what I want to work on this week. I want to work on um, if the line out, right? I want to do a couple of extra sessions. What part of the throw was I not happy with, right? How can I break that down and just list it out and go, right, Monday's this, Tuesday's this, as, as extras over and above what the team would be doing 
if there was team faults, I would sit down and go, right, well, what are my thoughts on these? And then I would go in to coach senior player, whatever it is, the next day and go, right, look, I think that this has been nagging me now for a few weeks. It's not just a thought off the back of one loss. This is a bit of a trend that I don't like. This is what we need to, to rectify. So I just find allowing myself time to stew on it and then going right right down, what can I do to be better, helped. As much as you loved it and you are your Ireland's son as a success story, did you ever think, is this really worth it if I'm going to be feeling like this after a defeat? Many times in a week you would you would feel like that. Um and you would feel like it. The one of the probably the worst bits of the week is trying to eat a pre-match meal. And um, the bigger the game, obviously, the more nerves you have. And you're trying. You know, you're sort of three, four hours away from kickoff. You know, you have to eat something because you need the energy. And it is atrocious. I can't. You can't put into words how difficult it is to try to force yourself to eat food. Um, leading into that and. Like those are the moments you kind of go and you're waiting in your bedroom or waiting in at home here to travel to the game and you're there and you're just going, why, why am I doing this? And as soon as you get to wherever you are, you get out to warm up, you get out on the pitch, start the match, that's whenever it all goes. Like I said earlier, that's where it starts to feel, yeah, this is where I want to be. But there's loads of times, even like sport is so... Like we really don't deal with the the contrast between defeat and victory well at all. Like you can come in, you can play in a game and be outplayed for 80 minutes and kick a drop goal and win the game, having played poorly and everyone skipping on a Monday morning. You can play in a game that you've completely dominated and somebody hits the drop goal and you lose it and you come in and I mean always come in on a Monday morning and it is the end of the world and you'd get to training and it's edgy and people are taking lumps out of each other. And like, it's really, you contrast the two performances and you've been far better in the game you've lost, but because of one hoxie kick at the end of a game, your entire mood changes. And it is so like, there is a bit of a saying and like teams and, and I fully subscribe to that. You're never as good as everyone says they are and you're never as bad either. And the answer is always somewhere in the middle, but it doesn't feel like it at times. And it's that extreme that really does, it, it is really hard mentally. And that's why it is a roller coaster and it is an actual roller coaster. And it goes from day to day, not just year to year or Decade to decade, it is literally day to day. You do not know what is going to happen, depending on injuries, form, results, anything. You're what around five foot eleven? Yep, and, and a half, but we'll not split hairs in the half. <laughs> and you're built like a brick shit house, or in North Down, they would say an outhouse. <laughs> this has shown me that no matter how tough and how hard you are on the field, that you're a real big softy when it comes to dealing with your emotions. And this shows how proud you were to play for Ireland and to play for Ulster that you took this so bad when you lost a game. Yeah. And like ultimately a lot of your rugby career is about, is trying to deal with the emotions, is trying to deal with the roller coaster, and probably more so when I became captain, it's trying to let on to people that, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And, 
like even whenever the when the book came out and the biggest surprise to so many people was how insecure that I was about my position within the Irish team and I kind of take it I suppose a little bit as a compliment in that I needed I felt I needed to portray outwardly that I was ultra confident nothing couldn't do etc etc but inwardly like you are dealing with a battle you know you're trying to convince yourself at times that you know you're as good or you're better than everyone else or whatever it is or that thing parts of your game that aren't good are good and um like that was just like, like that was difficult but ultimately it's almost like a bit of a you know can i be strong enough to portray this outwardly but also brave enough to sort of tell yourself and the people around you to go look i'm struggling a bit here struggling with this and when they needed to talk to people and i was a big a big advocate of um psychologists i i sort of and even since I've retired, the lockdown kind of stopped it. But when I retired, I went, you know what, I feel good. I'm very happy that I'm retired. I'm, I've given a lot to the game and I've nothing more to give. But it's still a huge transition. And I went, well, I saw a performance psychologist. So why wouldn't I see a psychologist just to chat through? Like, why wait till something breaks to then go, right, I need to see somebody. Why not have a talk? And, and I would have went back reasonably regularly if, if I could have um, with no one saw COVID-19 coming. So um, like, like that is, it's a big, a big part of my game was a pretense really that everything's okay because people look to you. Um, but the other side of it was that you have these fears and everyone has them, but you got to try to manipulate them as best you can. And for me, that was psychology and making sure that I was as mentally as strong as I could be. I want to dip into the autobiography. Do you, ever think to yourself how did this happen is this something that's that's made up because your career was absolutely unbelievable but as well as that there's the famous quote that you said you allow people to convince you that you're done but you also allowed yourself to convince people that they're wrong and that you were one of the best players to ever play for Ireland how hard was it putting that all into a book it was really, really difficult. There's so much that, that you leave out. And it's actually really hard reading it, um, parts of it, because there's, there's times you, you read and you read back in your early career and you just, there's parties kind of thinking, oh, I wonder if I could have done that differently, would, what would have been different? And uh, you also read it and just, you sort of go, flip, you know, I'd love to go back to those mid-20s where I could get out of bed without sounding like I was trying to pick up a ton of weight um, <laughs> and bits and pieces like that and sort of feel a wee bit more carefree because it did become, you know, it was a lot more, there's a lot a lot more pressure and stress in my latter career just with, with the captaincy and with the level that I'd got to and, and that's natural. But um, yeah, there was times that were brilliant you know, to read the really early years and to sort of be reading back over those to make changes and, and to sort of, you know, to make sure it was how I wanted it to be. Um, but then there's other bits you read and you kind of go, oh. but um, I think that the leg of that, that question about that New Zealand game that I mentioned earlier, like that was, that was a really hard and probably a big personal achievement for me because the Argentina game the week before, like I was getting, basically everyone told me it was done. And I say everyone, I mean the press um, and, you know, you're kind of just there going, 
might be they're right. And I actually, the, the ironic thing was I sort of went, you know what, I've played well against Argentina, just the line out didn't function. And, and that's the bit that it's hard to get yourself away from that one area of your game doesn't necessarily dictate how the whole thing went. And I actually threw all right that day, but they guessed and they stole a few balls and the stats weren't great. And I played well. And then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm reading or, you know, people sending the old message going, don't listen to what they're saying. And you're going, well, what are they saying? Like, this is thanks for pointing out that somebody's saying something. And you kind of get all this and you just go, what if they're right? What if I am actually too old? What if I can't move the way I used to? What, you know, what if I'm done? What if I'm if I'm actually holding this even worse? What if I'm holding this Irish team back from being great? And I genuinely like I had my wife convinced in that week of the New Zealand game that this was going to be my last game for Ireland. That if if I didn't play well and we lost, that at the end of the game I would say, guys, thanks for everything of you've given me over the years, but I am out, and that's exactly where. That's where I was at that stage. I was done in my head. And um, yeah, like you say, you sort of when you think back and you look at it like that, it's utter madness. So like, for example, in that, like, there was one journalist seemed in, my, in that part of my career, seemed, I felt rightly or wrongly that almost had a bit of a vendetta to get me out for whatever reason. And any time the line out didn't work, it was, he's done, he's done. And like, I would have very little respect for this guy when he writes rugby columns. And it sort of takes you sometimes. And I actually sat down with Andy McNulty on the Thursday before the New Zealand game uh, when we moved into Dublin City Centre and had a chat. And he said, what? Like, what are you talking about? You know, what did Joe say about your game against Argentina? I said, no, he said he was happy. Line out needs tightening up, but there are many aspects to it. And he goes, well, the best coach in the world says that one of our best players ever is playing well. So why are you doubting yourself? And... I think that that's the, you just sometimes need little moments like that. And Jody is obviously, she's trying to convince me she doesn't want to sort of patronize me and go, would you catch a grip of yourself? Because she knows with me, that'll be, that'll have a detrimental effect. And it's moments like that you think, going, I don't actually have much time for this guy, right? Yet I'm allowing myself to listen to this. It was just, you know, you just can't. You get those moments when you go, right, that is absolutely mad. There was times at the start of your career as well when you were on the receiving end of abuse because of who you were, not so much your performances playing for Ireland. Does that ever make you want to say, well, you know what, I can't be arsed for this, I'm not doing it? Um, I think the beauty of it is that most of that abuse came when I was quite young, when I first started off, social media wasn't enormous and, and you got little bits and pieces. People didn't really know how to how to use it properly. Um, but it was, it is difficult. It's not nice. And even, like, you could tell yourself, and now that I'm at the other end, and if a player came to me and said, oh, this guy wrote this about me on social media, I'd go, you catch a grip, like, don't. But when you're in that, you can't help it. Like people don't like to read nasty things about them, and especially when you're trying your best. And that's like I really love this sort of movement that um, professional footballers more so, but that are really trying to hammer home that it's actually unacceptable some of the stuff that's written. And like, uh, you need pages and pages to list down all the horrible stuff that's been written to me on social media and tagging me in it so I have to see it. Um, yet, 
maybe twice, maybe twice, somebody has actually come up to me face to face and said, I didn't like the way you did this, or I thought this wasn't good enough. And like that's, you know, you're talking about probably thousands of tweets versus two people. And that to me is wrong. Like those ratios are completely wrong. So like, why do people, and like we are, we're not like a professional footballer in, in England. Like we are a lot more accessible. Like if you want to find me and say something to me, it's not very hard to find me. So it isn't, you know, like you'll be about somewhere, you know, the footballers are a little bit less accessible. Um, but especially in this community, you know, we're very much Ulster rugby players are very much a part of the community. Um, so like, I, I just sort of think it's like, and I think the, I think the ironic thing about it is that my kids are a lot more informed than I would be or my generation are. Like they're coming home every day with messages from school about being kind online. Uh, it's nice to say something nice and to do slogans and posters. And, and they are a lot more aware of the ripple effect on social media than we are. Not because it largely was thrust upon us. It was all of a sudden you were given this tool that you could write to anyone in the world and you're going, so I can send this to anyone and they'll get it. And I was like, here we go. Whereas now they're, they're more educated. There was a documentary that I was watching recently called Finding Jack Charlton. And I thought it was quite relevant with you being one of the biggest heroes in Irish sporting history to chat to you about it. It was about Jack suffering from dementia. And with that, I was reading about the kids in school that aren't allowed to play. They aren't allowed to head the ball in training, but they can head the ball in games. Do you think you're lucky that that never affected you when you were playing rugby? Because as I'd said before, it is a tough man's sport. Yeah, I think that it's probably one of the worries that you have is that rugby's so infinite in its professionalism. Like, I don't think we're really 100% sure of what the long-term effects are going to be. And there is the, the Steve Thompson, um, and I think there's maybe, there could be 50 players in, in the lawsuit. Steve Thompson played in the World Cup final for England, and now... He's showing signs of early onset dementia and doesn't remember the World Cup final. Um, so there, there is a bit of that. And look, that is, is obviously a worry because when you start off, when you're sort of some of the first people that really build into professional sport um, and you're kind of like when I even think back in my 15 year career, where we were with everything we did in the first year versus the 15th year, it's night and day. So Everything's evolving, sports science, the size of people, the medicine, the actual what we understand and about the human body and the brain and the contacts. You know, all of that is always developing. And, and that is something that, that you're always aware of. I think what I take as a parent, um, being on, I'm in sort of a couple of the World Rugby Players Union, sort of some of their committees, and it's what World Rugby and what the Players Union are doing. Every meeting you have, player welfare is top and law changes to ensure player welfare, the head injury stuff. So that is a paramount importance to that. And that is a paramount importance to me as a parent. You know, you, you probably are more reckless when you're a player. You don't think about it as much, but when you come out the other side and you're definitely, you're more protective of your kids than you are of yourself. And it's really important to me that that, that is, and they're doing 
they're certainly being very progressive in what they do to make sure that that becomes important because it is important. So in terms of what the long-term effects are going to be, I don't think we really know. All we can do now is in the present, just keep trying to make rugby as safe as possible from a parental point of view to understand that the hits that they see in a Six Nations game is going to be different to what you see in a provincial game, which is very different to what you see in a club game, an underage game, the minis, because everyone is is trained to play at that level. So if you put my son who's 10 into a Six Nations game, of course he's going to get hurt. But if you put him in the pitch with the 10-year-olds and they're taught technically how to do things, you know, that very much lessens the risk of being of getting hurt. And the mental health and physical health benefits of playing rugby um, greatly outweigh um, you know, risks or potential risks that, that we don't know what's coming down the line in 20, 30, 40 years' time. Do the kids want to uh, follow in dad's footsteps? Um, my eldest definitely does, Ben, and he's been probably immersed in it so long. He wants to be a rugby player. Penny is dancing, gymnastics, hockey, piano, mad. Um, luckily, she doesn't take after me in any of those. And my youngest, Richie, is adamant that he wants to play soccer. And it's largely because he loves soccer, but also there's a bit of it is because he thinks I want him to play rugby. So out of pure <laughs> stubbornness, he's saying he's not playing it. And I keep saying to him, I don't care, Richie, whatever you do. And that is what I tell them all. Look, I don't care. I would love it to be team sport. Obviously, I would love it to be rugby because no, but I would love it to be team sport. But as long as they're doing something and enjoying it, I genuinely do not care what it is. I can't talk to you on the podcast and not mention the recent Six Nations. It wasn't the best result for Ireland, but it wasn't the worst. I think they're on the, on the right track. And I think if if you'd have said before it that they could fin- that they would finish third um, and that they would be tracking and they would finish the way they did, I think they would probably be as a building stage. They'll be happy enough. They would have probably envisaged it being England and France finishing ahead of them. And I think they would all end, right, well, we're the best of the rest. That's good. The way it panned out, it really just it shows you, you know, they were really unlucky against Wales, red card. Um, and that's hard to win at international level 14. Then France at home was nervy and they ended up, they lost that by a couple of points. And Wales you know, rode their luck in the first two games and then never looked back and they ended up champions. And, and that's where sport is. The year we Grand Slammed in 2018, like we weren't good in the first game and we had a long-range drop goal that not many people in the world could have hit it to win the game. And then we, we built them and on and, and you need a bit of luck. Ireland didn't necessarily get at the start, but I would be very encouraged with the last three games, the way they played and the way the, how solid they looked in winning those. In fact, they were better than solid. You've been so open, Rory, throughout our chat, and I think you're even more of a legend than I originally thought. It takes a lot of bottle to talk about mental health from a tough rugby player's point of view. So with that, I thought we would end on one of the funniest stories that I've read about you. And bear in mind, I haven't prompted you on this, so I could be throwing anything at you. <laughs> I'm wondering what's coming, yeah. But you're just going to expand on this a little for people who might not be aware of it. I was reading an extract from... Uh, James Haskell's book, where where he put... Hey, we should stop there, because his book of lies, you mean? <laughs> um, he pushed you down a hill in a, in a hospital bed during your Lions tour? 
Well, there is a little bit of artistic license in that from him, which he doesn't need much encouragement. And he laughed about it afterwards. He said, he just said to me, well, I have to sell books. Um, it's very, it's close enough. We, after the Lions tour, for some reason, they, you stay out. So you play the last game on a Saturday and you don't fly home till maybe Wednesday or Thursday. So your season's over. And like those Lions seasons are log seasons. You're going for... You start usually in sort of June, July pre-season the year before and you finish sort of July, I think they're August this time. So it's, it's a long year. You're getting your holidays. You're getting a slightly extended holidays. And all of a sudden, you've been given a few days after it to spend time with these guys and basically go on the drink. And this was <laughs> off the back of a, of a fairly heavy one that had went on um, a lot longer than it probably should have. And we were sitting in the team room and there was Ian Henderson myself, Jack Noel, Dan Cole, Joe Marler and Haskell. And they thought it would be hilarious if I pretended to be asleep in this bed. But the sort of, as I was messing around, blanket over, they then wheeled me out the emergency exit in a, out of this hotel in Auckland and left me in the side of the, of the street. People are going back and forward to work. And then Haskell thought it would be even funnier to sort of half push me down the hill. Um, so it was... Sometimes they try to put themselves in the people that are going to work. Uh, and they're sort of saying these because the Lions were in town. Like it was a no rugby was everywhere. And they're going, are those Lions guys? Is that guy in a trolley bed asleep outside the hotel? And uh, you know what? It was really, really good fun. But I was very glad to board a flight I to go imagine, home. I can imagine you were riddled with the fear on that 20 hour flight or whatever yeah. it was. But the funniest quote from apart from the actual context of the story, Rory Best and his fellow Ulster man, Ian Henderson, were like Shrek and Donkey on the track. <laughs> <laughs> With that, we will leave it there before I get a letter from your lawyers or somebody gets a, somebody gets the lawyers involved.